This is Flynn's Talk, a podcast created to highlight the amazing contribution that veterinarians make to our communities and to raise awareness of the mental health challenges that vets and other animal care professionals face in their line of work. The Flynn's Walk mission is to walk it out and talk it out. Unfortunately, right now we can't hold our walks, but we can continue to have meaningful conversations just like this. Well, here we go, series two of Flynn's Talk. Jez, welcome back. How are you? I'm very well. It's actually it's actually really nice that we made it to season two. We we sort of started this thinking we might do a couple of episodes, might get a couple of guests on, and maybe our mates will listen to it. It's in the in a similar vein as as the walks, but it's mm. it's taken off. We've had quite a few listens, and people are enjoying it. So we're back. Yeah, it was really well received, and and um, I'd say we've, we've even developed like a mini fan base now. Shout outs to the, the vet med kid <laughs> on Instagram and the two vets talk pets. Um, Loyal followers. Yeah, exactly right. Um, no, it's awesome to have people tuning in and, and, and really appreciating the conversations we've, uh, that we've been having and um, yeah, really pleasing numbers across uh, the first series and, and a really diverse mixture of guests too, which was great. Um, something that we're hoping to, to continue across series too. Jez, uh, uh, actually a massive first episode um, today in, uh, in two special guests joining us, Dr. Paul Ramos, uh, who's based over in the UK, um, but was born in the States um, and, and studied and lived in Australia um, to do vet science at University of Melbourne, is joining us. Uh, and Rob Leach uh, from Vets Beyond Borders, um, the program manager there who uh, coordinated the AVERT response, um, which was a voluntary uh, veterinary response to the Australian bushfire crisis that happened over the summer. So we're taking you back a little bit. Um, we're going to take our listeners back today, Jazz. Yeah, I think I think this is actually going to be a really good first episode, especially with everything that's going on at the moment with the corona still hanging around. Um, people people have kind of forgotten a bit about the bushfires at the end of 2019, start of start of this year, and the fact that there's still there's still the impacts of that happening, and and it's still going on. There's there's um there's animals in need and there's animals suffering still now and and these guys are doing some great work about it. That's it, and, and a big theme in this episode will be volunteer work. Um, what it means to volunteer, how do you get involved? Um, Vets Beyond Borders got some amazing programs here in Australia and overseas. Um, the connection there is obviously Flynn uh, worked with Vets Beyond Borders over in India, um, and at the end of the last series we had Andrea Britton on, um, an epidemiologist. And um, she's put us in touch with these these guests for today. So um, I reckon we get into it, Jez, and, and bring him in. Sounds good. Let's do it. Well, it's always exciting to welcome um, new voices and new faces, Jez, into the Zoom feed. And uh, today's guests are no exception. A couple of Pearl is joining us today. Uh, first of all, I'd like to welcome at vet Paul Ramos, who's uh, Dr. Paul. From the UK, how are you, mate? Oh, just Paul will do. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. We like the plug. I, I tried to find an Instagram handle that were like. Well, I asked someone. They're like, you know, you need to put. I don't know. What should I be? And Paul Ramos. It's like John Smith. Sometimes it's just about the fastest way to the finish line, mate, and that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> At Flynn's Walk, if you're interested, um, join us there. Uh, Rob Leach joins us as well, who's a programs coordinator with uh, Vets Beyond Borders um, and he's a wildlife nurse at Wildlife Nurse Rob. 
for those playing along on, on Instagram. <laughs> Welcome, mate. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We'll get into a little bit more of the guts of this um, shortly, but um, a lot of people listening or, or may or may not know that Paul um, is a bit of a TV star um, with, through the Nat, Nat Geo Wild uh, channel. You may have seen him on Jungle Animal Rescue or Jungle Heroes, depending on where you've watched throughout the world. <laughs> Paul, uh, when I was looking up, trying to find out a little bit about you before we recorded, um, I stumbled across a two and a half minute clip of a crocodile stuck down a well in India. Um, Sounds like the start of a bad gag, um, which I think might have been the line that you used in the back of the truck. (laughs) Um, I'm starting the episode on a cliffhanger, but did the croc get out? Um, yeah, you would think that that was like mocked up, like let's create this really weird situation that would make really good TV, right? Yep. That croc had been there for three years. And then, um, so it was crazy. Was, and, and, and this isn't a well. The, the diameter of this thing is, you know, I don't know. It's like 10 to 15 meters across. It, it's hmm. it's an abyss. That's it's a not dam. A well. Oh, that's a pool. And then it went down really far. And you're like, how does something survive it for three years, right? And as I, as literally as I was, I was asking that question, leaning over the well, a lizard dropped from the tree into the water, like oh, right past my head. And I was like, oh, okay, that's it. It was so weird. And then there were a lot of like um, baby pigeons and things like that against against the uh, the sides of the wall. So um, it was just sort of picking things off. But but it came in as a small crocodile three years ago with some floods that came through. Um, and the farmer who lived about 20 meters away, um, he just, you know, had seen this crocodile and for the last three years, I don't know, but maybe on a daily or weekly basis. That That's how it got there. And it was there for three years, but as it was getting bigger, it, you know, little reptiles and birds were not going to be sufficient enough for, for it to survive. So it needed to be removed. Um, and yes, we removed it. It took, um, I think, almost three days. Who had to be winched down? Well, how do you do it, right? You don't, first of all, you say, okay, you can't see the croc. Is there, is there even a croc in there? Is it a man eater? Is there more than one, you know? Because um, if you go down there and, and there's, more than one, you're you're in real trouble. Uh, all you can see is the water, and then how deep is the water? And we were really surprised to find it was like it was like um, 12, 13 feet. The plan was we had to drain it, so we brought in some pumps, and that's why it took so long. On the first night, someone um, forgot to top up the kerosene um, generator for the pump, <laughs> so it stopped. So um, that wasn't on TV. They only put in the good bits, eh? <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, which you probably will, but. Crocs don't always live in water, do they? How does how does a croc actually survive in a well? Don't they don't they partly live on land? They do, they do, they do come out to on land to bask. But they can live they can survive in water. It's just it's just about when you don't have a choice, I think. Yeah. No, there 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 were a couple of ledges down there. Ah, yep. Because there was a picture of a croc that they 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 showed on their on their mobile phones um with the croc on the ledge. So it could Get out on this little tiny ledge at the bottom of the well. The plot thickens. This is sounding like a luxurious well. There's ledges, <laughs> food available. Like I'm I know. To think, yeah. This is um. This didn't sound so bad. Maybe the croc wanted to stay. I don't know. Nah, it's a good point. Pigeons, lizards. Pretty sure I saw some Netflix going on down there, but I wasn't sure. There's an interesting angle to all of this. Um, you were working with um as a volunteer vet with Wildlife SOS over there in India. Rob, this is how you came to know Paul. Like there's a reason why you guys are on this podcast together. Take us down that path where you were and how you became aware of the work of Paul. And he's, you know, was it because he was rescuing crocodiles in India? 
Uh, almost yes. It's a really bizarre story. So um, one of Paul's co-hosts on the program um, is a fantastic vet by the name of Hezi. Um, and she, almost two years ago, was my mentor and colleague. Um, and through Hezi, I uh, got to know Paul because she was ranting and raving about all of her fantastic co-hosts that she was working with. Um, so uh, within that time, I didn't even know who Paul was. And then when I joined Vets Beyond Borders, I just knew Paul as sort of this Instagram public figure um, who worked with Hezi in India. Um, and so fast forward sort of a, a year um, when I joined Vets Beyond Borders and um, I went to the, the bushfire grounds to sort of scope out the works that I was getting into as the, uh, the coordinator of the uh, Australian Veterinary Emergency Response Team. Um, and on the way down there, I got a text message asking if I could meet another vet that was uh, just on the way in another town. Um, but he was in a bakery getting, getting some coffee, so I'd have to meet him in there. And his name's Paul, but no other information about him. Um, and so I hopped over into this bakery and lo and behold, it's vet Paul Ramos, who I, he, he was my idol for, for a good part of a year through Instagram. We had a couple of children there and here he is sitting in front of me. Um, but <laughs> the best part is that he was on a phone call when I, when I walked in and my jaw absolutely dropped connecting the dots with Paul and who this Paul was. And so I had to patiently sit in front of him uh, while he was on this phone call until 15 minutes afterwards when he finished his phone call. And I said, Paul, Paul, it's me. You don't know me, but I know you. <laughs> and I was like, no, I know you when you when you introduce yourself. And, and uh, yeah, and I gave you the hug because like I could not believe it. That's so cool that there was Star you, Rock. Yeah, I was so stoked to, that you were there. I'm so, I was so relieved also that the Robert was was you like, okay, this is great. Cause like, it's, it's going to be someone that I know that I can trust and get along with. Sorry. It was, it was also a really great time in my life because I introduced myself. I said, Paul, you might know me as uh, wildlife nurse, Rob. And that was the first time I've ever used my Instagram to be recognized. <laughs> it's a real milestone <laughs> for me. <laughs> Instagram breaking down boundaries. So Rob, you're, you're over in Malawi. Um, cause you went to Zimbabwe, uh, on a bit of like a self-discovery tour and some time out, right? Um, but I want to come back a quickly a couple of steps. You used to be a nurse for people. Do you get bitten more now than you did then? <laughs> <laughs> good question. Uh, it was That's a very good question. It was a very uh, difficult uh, part of my life. Um, coming straight out of high school, um, I didn't quite know what I wanted to, or sort of which path I wanted to take. I was... Uh, either humans or animals, I knew I wanted to do something that I was sort of nursing and helping out. Um, um, and so I went down the path of nursing um, and it was a very broad path and I was torn between mental health nursing and emergency nursing. Um, and sort of towards the end, I was really enjoying it, but I was volunteering at a, um, a small animal veterinary hospital um, just to... Uh, sort of pass the time in my spare time, but also build up my CV and also help me sort of make that decision whether I wanted to make that jump into animals. Um, and there was sort of one catalyst moment that did make me make the jump between humans to animals. Um, and that was sort of one day when I had a patient in the human hospital um, in the emergency department where I was just a student. Um, and it came in and he was, 
on a bender of uh, illicit substances. Yeah, right. Not in a good way. Not in a good way. Not in a good way is, is a very <laughs> polite yeah. way to put it. Um, and so it was not pretty and sort of we had to deal with that. Um, and then later that evening, I went to volunteer at the vet hospital and there was a cat that was brought in. Um, and I was just a volunteer, so I was just standing around just watching. Um, and this was sort of my first time on that floor where the emergency was happening. It was after six, so it was sort of the late shift workers that were coming in. And this cat came in and it was uh, brought in from a 16-year-old's birthday party where the kids thought it would be funny to tempt it and feed it with some illicit substance. Mm. Um, wow. And it was really sort of traumatic to me as someone who sees it in yeah. humans and thinks, okay, sure, whatever. But then you see it in a cat who, I mean, it doesn't really know what it is, what it's doing, sort of the results of it. It doesn't have that sort of moral standing to make that decision to take that substance. And it's here sort of in front of me, surrounded by vets and nurses trying to stabilize it and it, it didn't want to be in that situation. It just thought whatever was in front of it was food. And so that was sort of the catalyst for me that drew me from working with humans uh, who have that moral ground to make that choice of, well, I mean, sometimes make that choice of where they want to be, um, sort of into the animal realm to help animals that get stuck into really sort of poor situations that aren't their fault. Uh, and then I was working at that veterinary hospital uh, for about five years. From there, I wanted to get into veterinary school. I completed a master's degree uh, in veterinary studies, applied for veterinary school, got knocked back um, and thought, well, okay, I'm at a bit of a crossroads here because do I keep nursing? Do I want to go into vet school? Do I go back to human nursing? And so at that point, I said, you know what, I'd like to sort of open my eyes to what to other ways that I can work with animals and see, see what else is out there in the animal realm. So I went to Africa on a volunteering uh, experience with conservation and wildlife, um, which was very new to me. I didn't even know anything about it besides whatever wildlife will come into the small animal practice, um, especially not African wildlife species. Um, and so I traveled to Zimbabwe and I learned a lot about primates. I learned a lot about sort of the African, the big five, as you want to call it. Um, and then I went to Malawi and I was only meant to be there for three weeks. Um, and I heard that there was a job opening. And so I asked the manager and I said, oh, I'm quite interested in this. Can I get this job? And she said, well, not a chance. I mean, like you don't have any sort of experience. You don't have any relevant qualifications. So why? Um, it's like a fair point. <laughs> I didn't really know what I was expecting by asking that, but I mean, if you don't ask, you don't get. So, um, she, I guess it was my determination to show that I was committed to wanting to help out, but also it was a lot of right time, right place. And the other two candidates pulled out essentially. And on the day that I was leaving and I was packing my bags, the manager came up to me and said, well, do you want to stay? And so I was there with a bag packed for sort of a two month round trip. And I stayed for almost two years. Quite incredible. And so Paul on a similar, on a similar vein, I'm sure people have seen you wrestling crocodiles, wrestling monkeys. Um, if they haven't, look it up. It's actually quite enjoyable to watch. Um, but a lot of people out there who aren't in the veterinary field probably don't know what a wildlife vet is. Can you take us through a bit about what you actually do on a day-to-day -day job? Sure. Well, first of all, Rob, that was really interesting. I really enjoyed listening to that. That's um, I, I see a lot of parallels between you and I, and I, and I totally understand 
like why you made certain decisions at a certain time. And I think a really powerful thing is if you want a job, especially in a, in a country where there's limited resources and living is hard, it's much, much more important to be that person who's good to work with and is there than the person who has an amazing CV. You know what I mean? Yep. The like the latter is like who cares? Like that stuff doesn't matter. Your 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 grades and your schooling doesn't matter at all. What matters is is um how you are to work with. And so it speaks a lot about you, but it, it also says that, you know, if you want to um go and do something, then show up. Yep. And that that's you ha you're halfway there. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. The rest of it is um down to the luck that you create, I suppose. I went to vet school because I wanted to work in conservation. And this was at a time when there weren't as many opportunities, um, say, online um, to work in conservation. So I thought a good way to do that was to uh, well, actually to, to, to get a PhD in marine turtles. I was looking for my advisor at the University of Queensland because I happened to be in Australia at the, at the time because I was a, a broke backpacker with no money to, to go home. Um, but I wanted to go back to school because I wanted to do something meaningful. Um, looking for my advisor's class, I, I accidentally walked into the uh, the vet school to, to ask directions, and I, I spoke to the secretary behind the desk, and she asked me some very interesting questions, like, "Well, you know, why do you want to do that? Have you thought about being a vet?" And 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 then she gave me some brochures. Uh, I went away for a couple months and I thought about it, and then um, I was I was actually stuck on an island for that those two months by myself almost, um, and um, I was just. I realized that it was a much better a better way for me to work in wildlife and conservation was to be a vet. Um, so, uh, so I, I applied while I was in Australia and I started in Melbourne. But um, to 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 work as a wildlife vet, you first need a foundation, as with everything, like building a house. You need that foundation first of medicine and surgery and people skills and time management. And you don't tend to get that as a wildlife vet because you don't get the the constant hands on experience um, with wildlife. Like the goal is to not do surgery. The goal is to not you know, practice medicine, really. You, you, what you want to do is you want to prevent the problems from happening. So as a result, you never really get your, your, your hands on the animals. Plus, they never let you touch them anyways unless they're anesthetized. So uh, for the first several years, I uh, cut my teeth um, doing small animal medicine and also a bit of large animal medicine, which years later really, um, really helped. Um, because a large uh, wildlife vet, um, there aren't any sort of um, known drug doses. Um, there's not, not a lot's known. So we have to extrapolate from small animal and large animal medicine. So basically, a giraffe is like a big cow. And an elephant is like a big horse. And you, you kind of approach it like that. I would have thought it would be the opposite. No, no. Elephants are hindgut fermenters. The way animals digest, you can, that's one way you can, you can group them. So ruminants, the ru like ruminants, a, a camel's a ruminant. Um, so you kind of practice ruminant medicine. And there's, you know, there's other sort of, of course, there are also giraffes, but there are basic principles there that, um, you know, if I was a sick giraffe, I'd much rather see a cow vet. And, uh, you know, equine specialists are the ones they call in for elephant medicine in zoos um, oftentimes because they're very much big horses. Yeah. So you need to get that experience. Um, and the other thing is you need to um, use your own experience and also the experience of your colleagues. So a lot of word of mouth stuff at conferences and talking directly about what works and what doesn't. And through time, you kind of build up a knowledge base for wildlife medicine and you become essentially one big generalist. Your knowledge is very wide, but not so deep. 
And I imagine that would sort of be a pretty hard path to get into. You wouldn't you wouldn't imagine that it would be such an easy thing. Is there is there like a career path to actually becoming a wildlife vet somewhere? It sounds like quite a difficult thing to do. It's much less defined now. When, when I was starting, um, it was much more vet school, internship, residency, wildlife medicine. And that's, that's, that's the track that I took. I did a, so I did yeah. a residency at Melbourne Zoo. Fairly uh, straightforward. Zoo's Victoria. It was kind of like the only way. Oh, yeah. But nowadays, yep. like what Rob did, that is, that is, that's the way to do it, man. Like if yep. I was to do it over again, I would just like be like, I'm going to pack my, I'm going to get my, bit, my foundation for a couple of years and then, then I'm going to pack my bags and I'm going to go to Africa. That, that's what I would mm. do because I would like th- after that, I would much rather hire someone who has two or three years in, of experience in Africa than, than someone who's been comfortable working in a zoological institution in the U.S. because yep. they know how to deal with limited resources and they know how to get creative and they know how to like balance politics and then they know how to communicate to get things done and lead teams mm. yep. much more than someone who's um, in an institution. Um, so that, that's what I would do. Also, there are more opportunities to do that. Like you just go and do, and if one project turns you away, go on to the next and the next until you get a yes. Um, but that, yep. that would be my approach rather than go down the uh, residency um, pathway. I mean, of course, if you, if you get a residency, go for it. But in Australia at the time, there was one residency every like three years. So You talk about getting involved in particular projects and, and a recent project here in Australia has been um, the protection um, of wildlife from the bushfires, which obviously we've got some pretty unique wildlife here in Australia, and and, and the koala kind of became very much the symbol of of this major bushfire period at the end of 2019 and into 2020. Um, there was a, an enormous rock concert put on to raise money, um, clothing brands getting behind it, creating apparel for people to buy. Like it was extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money was raised. Um, not only to help um, save homes and human lives, but for animal protection as well. Rob, you touched on it before. You you were brought in um, throughout the bushfire period to to take on this program coordinator role with, of the AVERT program with um, VBB. Tell us a little bit about why that program exists. Um, and then from there, I guess, uh, you know, Paul's involvement um, we can touch on. The Australian Veterinary Emergency Response, or AVERT for short, um, it's actually been in existence for a couple of years now. Um but it just became a whole lot more prolific during the bushfires. So it was uh, originally set up well before my time, um, but it was originally set up to deal with any sort of uh, emergency animal disasters. So floods, bushfires, uh, exotic disease outbreaks. Uh, so African swine fever that, uh, as Andrew was saying in the, the last episode, which has hit Papua New Guinea already. Um, so it was uh, set up to deal with natural disasters and helping animals in these natural disasters. Um, and so I joined in sort of mid-February where it was the heat of the bushfire season. Um, pardon the pun there. And it was really intense being thrown into the thick of it because I was uh, in Malawi maybe a month and a half before that. And I was very hands-on with the animals and African wildlife species. And then coming here um, to coordinate vets, which was basically my job for a good part of a year and a half where I was coordinating vets around the wildlife center that I was working at. So these international vets and vet students would come through and get this volunteer wildlife experience. Um, and I was living with them. So I got a pretty decent grasp of their needs and wants. So that's kind of how I fell into this role of this coordinating 
this veterinary emergency response program. Um, and so we were working very closely with the, the National Parks and Wildlife in New South Wales. Um, and we also were working with uh, an independent group in South Australia. Um, and so we were sending volunteers out to these animal welfare organizations on the ground that were being absolutely inundated with uh, animals that were needing saving. Um, and so we, we were sending volunteer vets and vet nurses just to help sort of staff these makeshift triage clinics. And when I say makeshift, I really mean makeshift, like some of the things that I'm sure Paul can attest to as well. It was really sort of in desperation, everyone just really wanting to help the animals and doing every single sort of bit that they could for it. Yeah. I mean, we, we walked into that one place and they had 20 joeys in their house and they had, um, you know, mamas and babies all over their couches. Their, their houses had been completely inundated with animals. Um, one, because of the numbers of animals that were coming in, but two, because the rains came and it was muddy and they couldn't go out because the bandages would get wet. So um, they were overwhelmed and they needed help. So how do you put your hand up to be involved in that poll? Because like, it's an extraordinary thing to volunteer to be a part of. Um, it was horrific. Like the stuff you're going out there to see is, is just devastating. But You've said, yeah, I, I'm keen and I want to be involved. How do, where does that start? Well, it started when, when I was living in Melbourne. I was the head of the bushfire response plan for the Lord Smith Animal Hospital, which is the largest animal hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. And um, in, in that role, I helped um, to I helped really the governmental and non-governmental sort of vet industry to become more prepared um, in, in that I, I put together a huge um, seminar in the NAB auditorium. Um, I held the the world's first ever webinar in Burns Medicine with Dr. Arthur House, a specialist. And um, the, the drug companies were wanting to help out as well for, for the medications that are, are most useful. So we had a really good plan in place. And then I left and it, it sounds like the momentum of that wasn't kept up. Maybe because things got quiet again, there wasn't a fire. It's, you know, it's like um, in the quiet times, people aren't concerned about things. Um, but then when things happen, they they run around and say, oh, my God, you know, I need some help. But it's, it was very frustrating to see um, but when, when I landed that um, that um, all my work or, or all the stuff that was happening um, kind of plateaued. Um, so basically all I did really was so years later, um, these fires were happening. I was with my family in, um, in L.A. for Christmas. And I just said, I, I, I have, you know, training in wildlife medicine, particularly in Australia, I have bushfire response. Um, I feel like I need to get on a plane. And that's what I did. I just got on a plane with no plan. And within 24 hours, I was on the ground. I, I was not expecting that. I landed on a Saturday and then on 7 a.m. and a Sunday morning, I got a phone call um, that I had, that I was needed somewhere. And and that's that's how it started. That's quite incredible. And Rob, you can probably talk a bit more on this. I'm sure Paul as well. Um, since Corona has come in, everyone's sort of forgotten about the bushfires and about what's happening. But I'm sure there's still devastation going on. I'm sure this we're still living in the aftermath. Can you tell us a bit about what's actually still happening out there? Yes. So all of the ones in New South Wales, all of our triage sites in New South Wales uh, are no longer operating. Um, for various different reasons, um, but one of the main ones being uh, COVID and just wasn't uh, 
wasn't appropriate to keep sending volunteers uh, down there. But we are still operating at Adelaide Koala Rescue in South Australia. Um, they are doing some fantastic work. It's a 24-7 rescue for the local area of all native wildlife and they do some domestic species as well if they're in need of rescue and it's all volunteer led and it's some really fantastic work so we've got some volunteers down there um but of course with covid restrictions they have to be south australian residents so we were really sort of hampered by that um unfortunately because we had a lot of interstate um volunteers that wanted to go over and we just said i'm really sorry but we we can't so we're still helping out. They have about uh, 70 koalas in care at the moment. Well, Paul, I was going to ask, actually, talking about the koalas specifically, um, over 6,000 koalas or thereabouts um, are estimated to have been lost just in New South Wales, which is about 15% of the population there. But plenty were saved um, and went into care. What happens with the ones that we could save and that need to be rehomed? Like you, just moving a koala to a new patch of bushland is not that easy. It's not that straightforward, I'm guessing. Yeah, and I think it's also um, a good time to to talk about the koala in terms of why it's such a sort of um, symbol of the bushfires. One, of course, it's an iconic piece of Australian natural heritage, of course, but also it's one of the creatures that cannot outrun a fire. Um, these are crown fires, and they 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 spread faster than you can run um, across the treetops. And if you're in in its in the way, you you just can't get out of the way. Um, I've talked to people who um, have experienced these fires, and they say um, it sounds like a, a Boeing seven forty seven jet engine coming your mm -hmm. way. That's how loud it is. Wow. They're you know it's, it's the explosion is coming your way is basically what it's like. Um, and uh, and they literally create their own storm systems. So it's these fires are are you know in the last ten years have been like nothing has it, we've ever seen. Um, and unfortunately the, 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 seasons are, you know, they're starting earlier, ending later and they're hotter. Um, but koala has become a symbol of the fires, um, uh, for, for that reason. Um, but, uh, a lot of the koalas, um, that, um, had to be rescued were, were either left in trees that were killed by radiant heat. So they had no food or water. They get their water through leaves. Um, and they're stuck out there for, for, for weeks. And so a lot, so everyone will be dehydrated. Many will be in kidney failure. Um, and then, um, and then they'll have um, the ones nearer to the fire, but weren't killed by the fire. Will have burnt hands, burnt feet, um, burnt back, and that's been singed. But their their hair coat kind of protects them. Um, but those are the ones you deal with as survive survivors. And um, what you have to do basically is you have to treat the animal, and then you have to treat the environment because the animal has to go back somewhere. But koalas are very finicky animals; they're very picky. Even though there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of types of eucalypts, um, each koala might only favor a half a dozen in its lifetime and two or three in particular. Um, so, and, and they have a gut biome that's built um, around that particular eucalypt species in that particular region. So you can't just, for, for many reasons, you shouldn't release a koala into an area that it's not from, um, ideally. Um, but that's, that's one of them is they, they kind of, they belong there. So you have to wait for the, the, the trees to go back, essentially. It's, it, I suppose from here on, um, we spoke about um, in our preamble before we actually did the episode, we spoke about that potentially we're back now almost to where we might have started pre a bushfire environment. You know, what's next? Well, the next bit is making sure our environment doesn't 
get to that. Um, at risk of it becoming too political and, and too too in depth in that sense, but there's just stuff that we have to get right um, to help the animals out in the first place that we don't end up in this in this position, right? That's right. I mean, the question remains the same, and that is, um, you know, what about the environment that we all live in and that we are a part of as well? It's not. It's I. I you know, this is funny to say, but it's not about the koalas. It's about all of us. And that's the question. That's that's the question: is what about the environment that we all live in? So, in terms of these koalas, the next question is: well, they, you know, what about their environment that they go back to? But that, it's the same question. Same question for us as well. Yeah, well, well said. Um, it's definitely part of that bigger picture, and we certainly um, had a really good discussion with Andrew Britton about that as well. Uh, in the One Health sense, and and us working together and pulling in the same direction for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and coronavirus is another interesting one we're all facing as a as a society um, we've got to get around and get through um, and there's people out there that are amazing thinkers and, and problem solvers and have ideas we just need to listen to them there's a whole lot of uh, fantastic programs Rob as well that people can get involved with there's the um, Sarah program which is um, the Sikimani rabies and animal health um, which Flynn actually was involved with over in the north of India um, Ava, we talked about as well, um, on a practical level, how, how do, uh, vets or vet nurses, anyone out there, how, how do, how do people get involved? To volunteer, it's really quite easy. You just need to, uh, email me or jump on our website. It's actually really easy. You can kind of look at all of our programs up on the website. We do have quite a lot of, uh, new and upcoming projects, which is actually really quite exciting for us at Vets Beyond Borders. And we're trying to go for the whole sort of localizing uh, these travel bubbles because this adapting to COVID times, it's, it's a bit difficult. Um, so Pacific region, um, also all over uh, Europe and uh, Africa. And thankfully our volunteer base is international. So it's not likely that we're going to be sending Australians to Europe anytime soon, but thankfully we do have uh, quite a big volunteer base. So if anyone listening is wanting to join, there's a whole big range that they can sign up for. Um, just on our website, or you can just email me if you have any questions all the time, or find me on Instagram. Sneaky plug. No, that's great. Plenty of ways to find you. I suppose the the thing is, um, and that, and that Sarah program is, I know one that Vets uh, Beyond Borders is incredibly proud of as well. And uh, we've got another little one um, brewing, another chat coming up um, with someone special who's who's deeply um, part of that. So uh, watch this space, um, Paul. Uh, a reasonably big question but volunteering for you um you've touched on you know what what you got up to but like what's your why when it comes to volunteering um yeah that's a good question and i'm gonna go really meta here to sound like a hip guy <laughs> that gen z <laughs> i was looking at you know that the, the maslow's hierarchy of needs right it's a, a triangle at the base are the things you need to survive like a day or two and then at the tippy top is your, 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 your full sort of who you are. I was thinking, you know, in terms of volunteering, that needs to come really way, way lower on, on that scale. And actually, then I looked and it is there. Like right above food and water is being part of a community, you know, being, being, being social. Um, and, and I was surprised and not surprised to see that there, but I was, um, I was relieved in a way. Um, and what that means is that volunteering is so important to us is, is social human animals. Um, of course, there's the obvious um, tangible community benefits to volunteering, 
but on an, on an individual level, there's many, many more benefits that we, we still don't completely understand. But to give you an idea, if you look at like the National Geographic um, blue zones, right? Those are those half a dozen zones around the world where people on average live much longer than everybody else. It's like, it's like 100 years old and it's all over the world in the US and in, in Asia and et cetera, in, in Europe. And when you remove all the factors like exercise and diet and genetics, there is one thing that really sort of ties everything together. And that's um, the pe people's sense of being a part of the community, remaining active, being involved. And that speaks to, to volunteering is that it's just volunteering means that you are a part of something that's greater than you. And that's more than just about feeling good about yourself when you have spare time. It's actually much more on a primal level that's very real, that it really does benefit us um, um, spiritually, physically, um, emotionally. Um, so that's, I think that's my why is it, I feel a need, I'm a social creature and, um, to, to be a part of something greater than myself. Um, so that's, that's, that's why I volunteer. I think, um, when I step, step back and look at myself, um, and in terms of the project that I'll pick, uh, it's really important that, um, I know that it's a legitimate organization and that I'd work well with them and they would work well with me. So what I do is as I look at what my interests are and then I reach out and in particular if I can if I can talk to people like Vets Beyond Borders like now like if I didn't know Rob I'd reach out to him and then we talked I'd be like oh I could totally gel with this guy I like this organization I'm gonna apply you know what I mean um, because working with people is what it's all about so if you're gonna be thinking about volunteering try to find a way to interact with the people that are there or that have worked there and you'll figure out very quickly if it's the right fit for you yeah, I think um, obviously this whole Flynn's Walk initiative from our side is is voluntary and it's something that's close to our hearts and it's the reason why we started it. Um, you know, it's it's our thing. It's our, it's our way to affect some change or, or to, to do some good, whatever way you want to frame it. And, you know, I've done various things in work life where I've packed gift bags for kids and families domestic, fleeing domestic violence and stuff like that. And you go, I felt really good about doing that today, even though I don't know someone that's been affected by that necessarily. I hope never to know someone who does, but people who people do, right? So you've done something. But for this, we're so connected that um, yeah, you volunteer because it's close to your heart. And I think that um, you realize that it never feels like a chore or an effort to do it. Um, that's certainly how I feel about this work. We do all this podcasting for this mission to get behind it and meeting people like yourselves and having you guys endorse what we do and, and, and to be proud that we're doing this as well. That gratification back feels feels fantastic and, and we've thanked all our guests for the feedback and the kind words we get back to us as well for that so i can certainly understand there's a there's a there's a big theme there and it doesn't matter what sector you're in or what your focus is that volunteering gives you that feeling so get out and try something um and and volunteering means you can meet with and, and work with great people who you may never have get got the chance to do that um in a professional sense um so, so get out there and have a crack if there's something you're interested in. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you're doing it because it's actually something that rings true to you and something that you, you want to do for yourself, for the community, for someone else, not just, not just to pay the bills or pay the rent. It's, it's quite an incredible thing that, that a lot of people do. Exactly right. And it's how, it's how you meet lifelong friends like Paul as well. I, he was just a face on an Instagram, but we were both volunteering at the time. We we're both doing, following a passion of ours. 
And there we are. We got to meet in person and I'm proud to call Paul a friend. Met him in real life. The rest is history, as they say. Sealed with a hug. <laughs> the, the act of sort of giving without expecting anything in return, ironically, gives you so much back more. In, in maybe not immediately, but like this, like, um, you know, it, it, like karma is, is, is a real thing, you know, and, and um, it's, it's just good for you to, to give and to be positive because it does come, come back around. Obviously, all of this that we do has a, has a focus on mental health and acknowledging that um, not all of this is fun and, and, and it can wear people down. And the veterinary industry as a whole um, has, has really, you know, horrifying statistics around people, um, unfortunately, taking their lives. Part of this, this work, Paul, that, you, that you've done out in, in bushfire affected areas and the things you've seen across the world, um, you know, uh, have been remarkable in, in, in all senses of the word. Uh, my question is, how do you debrief about this stuff when you've seen bushfires tear through and, and take out a community of animals or affect a community of people? Well, I think, first of all, it's so important to debrief. In other words, it's so important to express yourself and to communicate and not to hold it in because a lot of people um, do that. They'll just sort of finish their shift and they'll go home and it builds and builds and builds. So you definitely need to debrief for many, many reasons. Um, I mean, yeah, you... you you see horrible things and um, a lot of devastation, and that's the the reality of of, of what you've chosen to to be a part of to help. But it's important to then look around at the people you're working with and the people that are helping you and that you're helping, and that everybody's there and that everybody again is 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 trying to be greater than themselves. And so, your perspective is really important. Um, that um, yes, these terrible things happened, but look, look at these people around me. And that brings me up. Surround yourself with positive people uh, really, really um, helps. I would also say that, I mean, vets, the thing that makes a good vet is also has an underside to it. So being a good vet means that you're, you're sensitive, you're working with animals, you like to be a team player. And that's, and that's why you've chosen the field. And that's why you're, you're, you're good working with animals. But the underside of that is that you can be, um, you're an emotional person and um, you don't like conflict and um, you can feel alone at certain times if there isn't a good team environment. Um, so recognizing that there's an underside to that, a dark side, and shining light on it, uh, on it makes it lose its power to say, I can be like this, I accept that, and I'm going to work to, now that I see it, it's kind of in my, my vision, um, I'm going to do my best to not let it overcome me. And sometimes because it takes so much energy just to be positive and optimistic, you know, that's not, that's not a reality for a lot of us because it's so tiring. It takes energy. I, I've heard this and this really works. If you can't be positive and optimistic, that's cool. But try this. Just don't be negative. It, it's a lot easier. It's like by default. Okay, I will, I'll do that, but I just, I won't go down that road. I won't say that negative comment or put up that negative remark. Just don't be negative, and that can help you not go down that road. And um, that's that's sort of one little tactic that I use when I when I'm not feeling up to it. Yeah, another one, uh, another in a similar vein is um, acknowledge that as shitty as it might feel right now, it won't stay at that full level of shittiness, a ten out of ten, forever. It it will slowly become a nine, an eight, a seven, a six. You might only get down to a four and go back to an eight, but it'll never be a ten forever. Um, and you control 
whether that comes back from 10 down to one. That, that is so hard though when you're in it, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to. Yeah, absolutely. Like when you're in it, you know that on an intellectual level, you know that, but it doesn't feel like it. Yeah, you're actually trying to convince yourself of that. Yeah, well, it, yeah, because it's true. It's definitely true. Um, but, um, and that's where that, that community of people that I talked about comes into play. Communicate with them, debrief with them, talk to them, tell them how you're feeling and what you saw, cry. To like, you know, express yourself. I think that help really helps you to get over it as well. Especially in similar, in situations like you've both been in, everyone's experiencing the same thing. Everyone's often going through the same, the same sort of feelings and, and symptoms and being able to talk through that with your peers, with, with the people you're with can be such a powerful thing and, and help. I think it's uh, important to also try and be the person to start the conversation because everyone's got these things hidden deep down and everyone's sort of afraid of the, how people respond to it and the stigma behind it. But I think the more, the more people talk about it, the more people express it, even if, it, if at first people just don't respond to you and people uh, say, Oh, I'm sorry. That's bad. That's bad that it's happening to you. I'm really sorry to hear that. But after a while, if you keep opening up and you keep expressing yourself, people will resonate with that and people will respond and start opening up themselves. And then it's just a chain effect and it will just keep happening. And then hopefully, 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 that stigma will break down that we can have these conversations. That's one of the reasons we partner with are you okay? And, and we love what they do is, is for that, is for that exact reason. Their, their tagline is a conversation can change a life. And, and it often can something as simple as reaching out to someone and showing your care and listening to them can make a huge difference. Yeah. And I think it's, I think being persistent as well, not just saying, Oh, that person didn't respond well to me last time. I'm not going to open up again. It's yeah. Keep have keep going and, Hopefully something can change. Where, where are things now for you, um, Paul? Firstly, you've you've been off around the world, had the had the TV show in India. Uh, you're in the UK now, sort of batting down the hatches and having having a bit of a break. Well, I wouldn't call it a break. Um, I would call it um, I'm I'm just living life right now at the sort of pace that I want to, as like a father of, with young children. So I'm choosing to step back a bit so that I can be with them more. But with this, you know, with this, in this era where everybody is um, on, on, on some levels, we're all more disconnected, but on some levels we're all more connected um, by like what we're doing today. This allows me to, um, to work with people um, in other parts of the world. Um, so I can still continue to um, try to have the impact that I want to have um, from home. So, um, and I'm just trying to find a way to do that actually. So I'm working on getting out to the Maldives next year to work with sea turtles. Um, I'm working on, um, work, uh, trying to get on teams of, um, animal rescuers for, uh, major nat natural disasters. Um, but I've, I've got a, a number of, of things in the mix. What I'm really passionate about is, is storytelling really. And, you know, storytelling, how, how connected we all are to each other and to the natural world. That's, that's really what I found is my, my passion at the moment and makes me most excited. So um, that's where I feel like I'm going to have my impact and, and that's what I'm trying to do. Well, you certainly do a good job of it. And I, I think it is, it's an excellent way to make change and, and to influence people. Um, it's something that people actually respect and listen to is, is a good story. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a great way to get the word out. What I'm trying to do is like, um, I'm trying to just show how things really are Yep. and people can then make up their own minds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so I'm especially interested more in, I guess, the younger generations um, because to generalize, they're more apt to be open to, um, to changing their mind or, 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 or to having new ideas or to challenge the status quo. And so th those are the ones I really want to interact with, especially Gen Z. They rock, you know, like they're like, you know, a quarter of, of your population in the U.S. population, like 90 million strong. Um, they are much more politically active than previous generations. They, they want to vote um, and they're open they, and they really want a, a better future. And so I, I, I look forward to them taking over because the adults in the room um, have gone missing. <laughs> so, so they're the ones I want to reach. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just about sh showing rather than telling. And so is there a specific project you're working on now or what is the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing, your Instagram? Well, the two main social media platforms I'm on are on Vet Paul Ramos on Instagram. And the other, the main one well, in terms of followers is TikTok, actually. Oh yeah, nice. So, yeah. Um, so Instagram and TikTok um, at Vet Paul Ramos. Yep. Um, TikTok's just really fun, and for um, it, you can be really creative. You don't have to be serious. Um, and people on are, are, that are on it are still very nice to each other, which is great. Um, but I'm I'm also starting up a, a a website just to to park my stuff somewhere so that I have control over it because all these platforms can go away. Um, so I think that's going to be launched, not launched like it's I'm a thing. Um, it's going to go online. Um, yeah, it's going to go online, and uh, and and strangely enough, the uh, the website's name will be vetpaulramos.com. That's probably the best part. You got to keep the continuity. You you got to man. It's fantastic. Don't worry, Paul. I'll be your first follower. I I asked the question on LinkedIn. I was like, do people do this? Do you put a web website out for yourself? Like, who am I? You know what I mean? I I have nothing to sell. Like, you know. Um, but I thought, you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like your Facebook without having Facebook in a way, you know, and it's mine. I get, I get to control it. Yeah, exactly. So Rob, for you, um, what, what, what's, what's in store for you for the rest of 2020? I mean, what's in store for any of us for the rest of 2020, but um, continuing your work with Vets Beyond Borders and, and, and on a personal level as well? Yeah, uh, I've been busier than ever, to be honest. Um, people would think that sort of with coronavirus and no one's traveling anywhere that uh, we as sort of an international charity would be slowing down. But no, I am now full-time with Vets Beyond Borders um, and I'm the programs manager. So I'm doing all the international work. Um, so we're working very closely with uh, partners sort of a lot more locally. So we can send volunteers, hopefully if this Pacific bubble opens up anytime soon, got a whole lot more uh, opportunities coming up for sort of that local travel, but also thankfully we are an international organization. So our volunteer base isn't just Australian. We also have volunteers across the world. So we're trying to work a lot more locally with uh, those across the world as well. Um, and then personally, I also outside of my full-time role, I also do a whole bunch of ethics stuff, which really interests me. So I, um, I sit on a human research ethics board um, at the University of New South Wales, um, which kind of ties in this whole sort of my, my nursing, human nursing background, um, which is really cool. So it sort of breaks up everything in my life. But then also I sit on two animal ethics boards as well. Um, and one, one phrase that really sort of resonated with me um, from one of my old mentors is that uh, humans are narcissistic and will always research on animals. But if we can make sure that it's done in the most ethical and humane way possible, then I think we should. And so that's why I sit on these ethics boards and hopefully I can ensure that the animals being used in research 
uh, looked after in the most in the best possible way, really. You, you know, going back to your your background of in, in human nursing, um, I I was on the um, the first ethics committee for basically the first ethics committee for an animal hospital, to my knowledge, in the world, and that was the Lord Smith. But when we started the board, we we're like, well, okay, we're the first, so how do you do this? Like, no one's ever done this before, right? So what we did is we went to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And we got the, like the chair of their ethics committee to sit on our board because children are very much like animals. They can't speak for themselves, but they need to have a voice. And that voice is the ethics committee. Like you might have someone, a parent at the Royal Children's say, no, I'm not, my child is not going to have this um, blood transfusion that will save their life because of my religious choices. Right. And so the hospital needs to come in and make a decision on behalf of the child and that's where that's sort of the uh the, the framework that we created for these ethics committees in animal hospitals it's, it's based on human medicine um particularly pediatrics but um yeah it's it's kind of come, comes full circle a bit wow yeah that's incredible this is um incredible and big picture stuff like both of you should be commended for uh very different things you're you're involved with but um it seems like you're very much connected um despite being on opposite sides of the world. So um, thanks for being agitators and, and thought leaders in many different spaces. Um, and thanks for your time to talk to us. Paul, I know you've come off a couple of overnighters and Rob, I know you've, you're flat stick with your work too. So um, thanks to both of you for, for doing what you're doing. Keep it up. Um, and I'm sure that others listening will yeah. hopefully get a bit of inspiration or, or maybe kick themselves into gear when the time allows to, to get out and get stuck into a new project. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was really nice meeting you guys and um, hi to all those listeners out there. Um, yeah, we just, it'd be great to actually meet each and every you, every one of you. Um, Cause we all have, I think a lot, we're aligned in terms of, of our values. So it's, it's great to see you out there. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well said. We've all got something to share. Huge, yep, Jez, huge conversation. Um, two incredibly talented guests, um, I think it's fair to say, with worldwide perspectives on what it means to, to give care to animals um, and, and I suppose support the community more broadly as well. Um, awesome to hear the, the stories from, from Paul and Rob. Exactly right. I mean, two people who absolutely love what they do, love animals, love the environment and just want to make things better. And it's it's incredible to see to see and to hear the the kind of work that they both do. The bushfires affected um, all Australians in many different ways, losses of homes, businesses, loved ones, pets, animals, livestock. Um, it's all pretty confronting stuff, Jez, and we saw we saw a lot of it through the media play out and we saw really devastating images. Um, these guys were right there and lived and breathed it. Um, we discussed the the debriefing process, but it's important to remind people that are listening that um, there's always support. Uh, if these events have affected you or there's events now affecting you with coronavirus, that there's uh, always support services out there. That's exactly right. If you, if you think you need help, if you think you need someone to talk to, uh, you can contact Beyond Blue. You can contact Kids Helpline or Headspace if you're under 25. As always, is Are You OK out there? They have great information on how you can talk to people that you care about, how you can start that conversation. If you feel like you're in a crisis or if you if you do need urgent help, you can call Lifeline on 131114. There's a suicide callback service or in an emergency, do call triple zero. Well said, mate. Um, it's important to give people that information and there's lots of stuff online. Um, you can find yourself or uh, 
lean on those around you and um, make sure you have your own support network. Exactly right. Jez, great to chat as always. Um, we're online, flinswalk.com.au. Grab yourself a beanie. Yeah, time of recording, there's there's a, a handful or two handfuls or so left. Um, they've absolutely gone off. It's been fantastic to see the beanies popping up on, on Instagram and around the place. Certainly has. Uh, you can also donate to to us and, and the mission we're, we're uh, behind um, through the website. You can buy a T-shirt, uh, a couple other little things on there, or just have a bit of a read about what it is that we're uh, working on Um when the walks are going to be, obviously, we're in a bit of a state of flux with um, being able to get out there and hold our events. But as as the landscape changes across Australia, um, in the figurative and literal sense, um, if we can get into particular cities or have people on the ground uh, run an event for us, we'll certainly be looking to do that in the safest way possible. Exactly right. At the moment, it's looking like we may get some uh, different areas of Flynn's Walk other than Melbourne at the moment. But Watch this space and we'll let you know if anything changes. Awesome. Thank you, Jez, for your time. Uh, thanks for listening as always. And don't forget to give us a follow as well um, or subscribe depending on where you are uh, listening to the podcast so that you make sure you know when new episodes drop. And tell your friends. And tell your friends. Tell your mum, tell your grandma, tell everyone. <laughs> um, Jez, we'll chat again soon. See you in the next one. Yeah.